0: We're at the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end of the build-out of the cloud. The cloud, of course, is structurally different than the internet. Cloud uses the internet, just like the internet initially used telephony, telephone lines, literally used telephone lines. But we're at, we're at an inflection point in infrastructure for information that threads through everything else. It threads through not just social media, but it also threads through all the other domains of machines, materials, and services.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager, due diligence, or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen.
2: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Koldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron. All right. Uh, Thanks, Niels, and welcome, everyone.
3: Um, So we're in the midst of a revolution, but it's not the revolution you think. Ever since Uh, Chat GPT burst on the scene last year. We've been swamped with opinions on how um, AI is going to change our lives, and it will change our lives, but it's not going to do so in isolation. To get a true revolution, we need advances in three different areas to happen at the same time. Number one, we need advances in our ability to gather and share information. We need advances in machines. And we need advances in materials, the physical stuff we use to make all this happen. And according to our guest today, this is exactly what we're experiencing now. So here to explain why this is the case and some of the implications of it is Mark Mills. Mark's the author of a new book, The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and the Roaring 2020s. Mark, uh, welcome to the show and, and thanks for joining us today.
0: I'm delighted, delighted to join you, and uh, pleased we get to talk about the book. You, you know, anybody who writes a book wants to talk about their book. So <laughs> it's, it's always a lot of work to write a book,
3: so I appreciate that. Well, can you, you know, maybe just start us telling you a little bit about yourself, your background, what you do for a living, and, you know, why you, why you felt compelled to write, write this book?
0: Well, I wrote the book because I spent a lot of my life doing forecasting, like all of us do and forecasts have a lot of characteristics that make them uh, not useful i'll tell you about my background in a second but people can find a lot about me probably more than i want them to know by going to the magic google machine and putting in mark p mills and all kinds of stuff comes up but i'm a a senior fellow at the think tank the manhattan institute where i i write about and do research on technology policy and energy energy policy it's a policy think tank all of them are then i'm faculty fellow at northwestern university's engineering school where i get the pleasure of a lecture a year essentially. And then da- uh, dabbling in uh, manufacturing sciences and working with the professoriate there were brilliant, brilliant engineers, scientists. And uh, and I'm I'm also a partner by way of full disclosure because I, I have a dog in the race, so to speak. I'm a investor and partner in a venture fund that focuses on software in energy domains because of the intersection of, we'll talk about the software bits and atoms. But, you know, forecasting is is a, is a tough art. There's lots of books about forecasting. In fact, I may make my next book about forecasting. I have a very long appendix in my book about forecasts of the past and what's wrong with forecasts, the characteristics of forecasts. And I like to characterize forecasters as falling into one of three buckets so characteristics. There's, you know, there's forecasters that are paid to entertain, which is not a bad thing. That's you know, a lot of fun. This changes everything. You know, the the world's going to end. Or this is going to eliminate all the cars in the world. Will, whatever, we're all going to be living in space and space tourism. But it's entertaining. It's fun. It's not fiction. It's just imaginative and not necessarily re- re- you know grounded in anything. Then there's a class of forecasters that are paid to sell their book, so to speak, in, in in investing terms. Right? They they have an agenda. They have a story. They have a narrative. They have a business, and they you know they I'm not saying they're lying, but they believe in their story and they're they. You know, people in that category often engage in cognitive dissonance um, by virtue of enthusiasms for what they're doing. And, and good on them, except they're, tell, they're they're selling a story, whether it's a policy story or telling an idea as in policies or whether it's selling uh, a product. Then the third class of forecasters are those who are paid to be right. And you never hear from them because if they're really good, they're locked up with golden handcuffs inside of investment funds uh, you know, they work for Warren Buffett or whoever, you know. So the book is, I hope, entertaining, but I was trying to lay out an architecture for forecasting the near future based on a truism and technology in particular. Forecasts about politics are very different. Forecasts about technology have a characteristic that's very important. And it's, I stole a line from the management consultant, Peter Drucker, that I only forecast things that have already happened. <laughs> That's a wise, wise decision. Yeah. But what he really meant by that was demographics are consequential. The future will have older people in Europe and the United States. That's already happened. It's not going to change. So, you know, in, in technology domains, you can make forecasts that have an unusual characteristic. Using the, you know, the mantra, you only predict whatever, what, always, what has already happened. Uh, is is actually a good metric. If somebody announces this this is a favorite clickbait, you know, an invention, a new thing, a new chemistry, a new... uh, Okay, that's nice, but it's not a product. It's not going to change the near future and the future that most people care about. It's the next decade. And what you can build in the next decade, you already know how to build. It's either something that's already fully mature that you can build more of, electric cars. They're fully mature. You can build more of them. Or it's something that someone is just now building... There's only a few of them commercially available. They're not widely deployed in markets, but they're obviously obviously possible to build and get on the cost curve of getting cheaper, better, which would be one of my other favorite subjects is anthropomorphic class of robots. something has been in fiction forever, but they aren't fiction anymore. They really exist. You can buy them. They are affordable in certain, certain applications. And so will there, be, will there be more electric cars in the future? Well, that's easy. And setting aside subsidies and stuff, we obviously know how to build those. Will there be robots in the future, which people still are skeptical about, very skeptical because it's been promised for so long, or flying cars is another example, air taxis? Well, th- we know the answer is yes, because they exist now at a commercial phase that's nascent. And, and that's because the idea or the invention that, be- that began the path to the path of being commercially viable started 10 or 20 years earlier, because everything, despite the Constant claim of accelerating change. One of the other things I map out in my my book is the timeline from uh, inception to a product to a product becoming commercially useful to an inflection where it's significant is roughly the same. Uh, it has been for almost two centuries. It has not accelerated because doing things at scale that are in the atoms world where everything operates, including computers, pretty much the same. Ten to twenty years from inception to a, a product. Ten to twenty years from the product being an inexpensive, viable, safe, useful, you know, high reliability product. And then after that, you start to see significant market penetration for most products, most devices, most things. And so that's what the book's about, is looking across the domains of machines, materials, and information. What, what's what's gonna be different about the next decade has already been invented. And the thread through it, the reason for the title the cloud, is the thing that's really different is the infrastructure of the cloud. We're at the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end of the build-out of the cloud. The cloud, of course, is structurally different than the internet. Cloud uses the internet, just like the internet initially used telephony, telephone lines, literally used telephone lines. But we're we're at an inflection point in infrastructure for information that threads through everything else. It threads through not just social media, but it also threads through all the other domains of machines, materials, and services.
3: Can we maybe, yeah, given that you mentioned that and your book's called The Cloud Revolution, maybe we could just talk about exactly what you mean by the cloud. And, and the reason I want to do that is because, you know, what I what I really enjoyed about your book is that you repeatedly tie things that we call virtual or cyber back to their underlying physical realities. And, um, so, you know, when we're talking about the cloud, we're talking about some form of physical space, made up of machines, which are made up of materials. So can you just, when, you know, let's say we can, we all using the same terms, what, when you talk about the cloud, explain
0: what that is in, you know, in physical terms. Yeah. Well, I th- that's, that's what is, is fascinating and surprising to most people. I mean, it's, it's obvious what you stated, nothing exists, no product or service exists without materials that were first mined from the earth turned into products, whether they're machines or other costs of products to allow you to do stuff. Uh, but most people ignore that because it's sort of hidden. And it, it, it's meaningful. It's first as a measure of scale, it's meaningful. If you're an investor, it's meaningful because it, sometimes there's new opportunities to invest in expansion of new domains that are making these things. But, it, you know, cyberspace software, the AI, Exists in machines, but for the machines, there is no software. Software is mathematics, it's a language. It's a mathematical language largely, but not entirely. It's a semantic language now too with AI, but it's mathematics. Those ideas exist ethereally, even meta, meta, metaphysically. They, they, you don't have to instantiate a number. Uh, but if, if you want it to be useful, you have to instantiate. You have to have a machine everywhere and always. But, but the, because, because the cloud is a is an infrastructure entails three things, right? It entails end uses, end use machines, devices that either collect or deliver information. It doesn't have to be voice. It doesn't have to be a map. It can be a, a temperature. It can be a state of being, a, a velocity, but you have to have sensors at, at the endpoint, collecting, delivering information. Then you have to have connections from those to some processing, some kind of mediation, some, which is the data centers but they are connected without wired and wireless networks. The wireless networks are invisible, except the things that allow the wired wireless networks, the radios, are machines as well. Big machines, complex machines, um, kilowatt-consuming machines. Every cell tower is a multi-kilowatt-consuming device and there are millions of cell towers in the world that never existed before. You have to build these things. So if you think about that, so how would you measure the cloud Setting aside what the cloud does, because it does more than store cat videos and annoy people with social media. It does, as everybody knows. It does mapping, which is an inferential task. It provides so, you know, ways to get advice uh, for both, both professionals and in industries and medicine, as well as people. You could shop in the cloud. It does lots of stuff, obviously, right? It, but a lot of it is not computation. It's, 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 and it's not communication. It uses communication. The dominant feature of the cloud of now and the future is that it does things that we, I would call inferential instead of computational. Mapping is inferential. You want to probably go here based on where you are, where you want to go, and traffic. But how big is the cloud? How big is the infrastructure, the combined, the hardware uh, devices that make that possible in, in a sort of seamless network? Well, you could measure it. You could measure it in, as a network in, in miles because it is a network, wired and wireless, and you know, it, it's measured in billions of root miles, billions. I mean, there's no other, no other network humanity's ever built that's measured. It, makes, it dwarfs the highway networks and dwarfs old telephony networks by orders of magnitude. You could, you could measure it in dollars because in the end, money matters, right? And in every infrastructure we spend money on. The infrastructure of the cloud's capital spending on data centers and on networks globally is now greater than the world's utilities, capital spending on electric utility uh, networks and production. So it's already a, a bigger utility than the electric utilities of the world. You could, you could measure it in buildings, which is sort of my favorite because the data centers for those who have never seen them, are you know, these are buildings the size of a Walmart, not filled with people or merchandise, but filled with, you know, hot Silicon servers storage devices, communications devices. And those things are just buildings full of, full of machines. You can measure those in square feet and in dollars and in power. So in the only analogous buildings, in an odd way, are skyscrapers. Skyscrapers uh, under a single roof can house a million square feet. So can data centers. And so if you sort of counted the world's skyscrapers, which were the icon of the technology of the 20th century fundamentally, they came along in the 20th century, and skyscrapers were made possible by as you sort out a confluence of technologies: electrification to make elevators, high-strength steel, right building techniques, roads because you can't skyscraper is not useful if you don't have roads and highways and concentrated infrastructure. So skyscrapers in the world that are roughly Empire State class, there's about 1,500 of them, and we still build them. Uh, data centers that are Empire State class, like a million square feet and above, five thousand, five thousand, fifteen hundred of them, and we're building building them at a far faster pace. It costs a little-
3: I, I wonder, Mark, if I could just ask a question. So going back to your what you were saying right at the beginning about forecasting things that have already happened. So are 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 you saying that we the scale of the cloud as it exists now is uh, is what's going to, you know, kind of propel this revolution? Or are you saying, you know, given what we can do, what we can produce now, it's very, I don't want to say easy to predict, but it's predictable that the scale going forward will be, you know, of such a size that it will generate this revolution. So in other words, are we, is the is the cloud build out just getting started, but it's
0: getting started in a way that we can now forecast with some clarity? Yeah, I think it's more of the latter category be the, 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 I, the cloud as we have it today, the first cloud data center was 1999 in Santa Clara, but the real build out of the cloud started give or take, you know, 2005, that's sort of the early 2000s, that's when this data center boom started and the kind of features that are associated with your smartphone were made possible essentially by cloud architecture. So we're, we're, let's say decade plus into the build-out. So it's now significant. As I said, it's already equal, to, exceeding the spending on electric utilities, but it's just getting going. So the many people say, well, oh, it's a big utility. You, you, don't, you can only use so many roads. You know, America has a lot of highways, famously the interstate highway system, so it was Europe and railroads. No one expects that those build-outs to increase tenfold, much less twofold, that many years, they saturate. We're not even close to saturation in the cloud and, and we know this because of the velocity of the buildup that's underway with conventional cloud and you began with you know with talking about and me mentioning AI and what what's, what's happening AI portends an even faster and more expansive build out of the cloud because of the physical nature of the machines needed to instantiate what we call artificial intelligence machine learning so is that so what you're saying
3: there is that the infrastructure that AI requires is going to necessitate a bigger build out of the cloud. For it to for it to operate across all the applications that, you know, we want it to, the cloud has to get bigger.
0: Yeah, it's already happening. But we already know if you look at what Amazon has announced and Hewlett-Packard, Google, uh, Meta, all of them have announced a, first either a pause or a redirection and expansion of the cloud spending. And it's not just to service you know, more uses for shopping. That's, that, that's on a very predictable linear track now, right? The, the invasion of commerce by or e-commerce. There's no step function really coming that we can see. But AI, uh, so most people know that machine learning, uh, both the learning and the inference required incredible compute horsepower. It's the most energy intensive use and most silicon intensive use of, of computing, period full stop. It's an orders of magnitude, more power and uh, logic intense, if you like, than traditional computation. Because you know, to learn something, you take billions of, billions of data, data points and you run a computer flat out, a supercomputer. So take supercomputer capabilities, you're not going to put a supercomputer anytime in the near future in your pocket. Now, you, your smartphone can have AI in, built into it. It does. You know, your facial recognition is, is AI centric. It's not a linear function, right? because your your face is a complex map. so it's it's a very AI kind of chip that's doing that. But to do the kind of things where everybody imagines and, and or is afraid of but both are excited about requires supercomputers. And they have to be easily easily accessible, hence network to the cloud. and they have to be easily upgradable because the pace of change is so fast that what cloud providers do is they're continually upgrading the hardware. To you know, bring you next generation capabilities, but the the footprint of power and and machinery to provide th- the demands that are now emerging in all the applications that people are imagining. And you know, are you're seeing explosive growth in both potential applications, not just things like drawing and doing movie making, but in everything from medicine to manufacturing. The IT departments of every company are experimenting with chat GPT or the equivalent to take work and time out of routine tasks. And once they figure out that they can do it, and it takes a little time, you know, it might take another year or so before a lot of people get up to speed or two, then they'll want the service. And they're not going to get that service by and large anywhere except for the cloud. And that that's a step function as big as the advent of the cloud or as big as the advent of the internet. This is, in analogous terms, this is, this is the era of you got mail. I mean, it feels like where everybody's amazed at the chat GPT in the cloud. Well, they were amazed that you got mail in AOL's early days. It was amazing. Everybody wrote about it, all kind of babbling, <laughs> blobbering. Remember this? Right, yeah. Uh, everybody's blown away. By, you could shop online too. You could actually see. <laughs> wow. So that that level of awe for where things were then in hindsight, but well, that was pretty pathetic, computing and uh, email service. That's- analogously where we are with AI and the cloud, we're we're just entering a explosive growth era. Hence, you see this in stock prices, where, whether they're properly reflecting growth or just they're, whether we're going to repeat 1990 bubble, which I think probably happens. But, but the enthusiasm is properly placed because it's, it is a big deal and it is a structural change that's now accelerating.
3: There's a so much in your book, it's kind of hard to know where to drill down. But the, you know, the first part is like a revolution in how we collect and propagate information. And you know, my understanding—and tell me if I'm wrong here—you're uh, just talking to people who have some uh, expertise—is that the AI type of uh, inference, machine learning, works best on a database that's kind of curated in some sense, that that's focused on a particular. You know, collecting a particular type of data. Obviously, the cleaner, the better. So, is, is there a, in some sense, a kind of a downside to this, um, to connectivity, in that you, you know you've got AI type logic operating across you know vast data sets that include a lot of garbage. Um, you know, the the, the quote unquote internet being being the most example. So, are, are we going to see the advances? Coming as we kind of segment data into kind of
0: use specific areas, and that's where we really get the advances. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of social garbage is you. It's not just. <laughs> well, no, you, you're absolutely right. You 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 phrase it really correctly, and and that's that's a really important insight that you picked. Um, that I thought about a lot of my book the quantity of data that we could collect is a functionally infinite because information isn't constrained by the, the the atoms world right so you can imagine collecting any level of granularity or precision that by infinitely right i could always want more data and uh, but the problem is quantity doesn't necessarily it, a lot of noise in it it's not useful it's the reason you can compress videos right because a lot of the information in the photograph is white, white space. So that's, that's essentially what a compression algorithm does. Throws out the, the stuff you don't need, then reassembles it. So wh- as we move into an era where we're hungry for data, the model of how we can do that, how can we curate the data uh, bef- as it's being collected, literally. So you're not storing data that's worthless and then processing data that's worthless because that's that's actually expensive. And as data volumes go up, you hit physics limits. It actually becomes it actually becomes a problem to store it and, and transport it, but you have this revolution in sensors' ability to collect data, where the cameras are tidy and cheap, or a good example. But te- cameras collect you know, voxels, you know, three-dimensional bits, are really data-intensive. <laughs> but visual information is incredibly powerful, not just you know for fun and entertainment, but for science, for analyses, and for regulations. We 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 there's an infinite amount of uh, visual data you could collect, especially with all cheap cameras are and how much cheaper they'll get, right? They're just, they're, they're sensors for photons. So the the pioneering on this was, uh, interestingly enough, with the um, Event Horizon Telescope. So this is, you know, me going down a, a dweeb hole because I wanted to be an astrophysicist when I was done. But you probably remember that the the all the news about the first photograph of a black hole. Remember it, about two years ago, this massive. Mm-hmm. And we saw this picture. Uh, and the picture was assembled by a, a collection of telescopes that function virtually as a single telescope with a diameter of the planet earth i mean and they collected exabytes of data i mean numbers that are staggering uh, and the the quantity of data was so great that you couldn't transmit it over fiber even as fi- fast as fiber is they they used what they called jokingly the sneaker net the data were collected on hard drives and carried people in airplanes to the central collecting computer Right, so this is the mag- so the astronomers have been trying to figure. That's
3: o- old school, going back to having floppy disks and
0: uh, putting. A- <laughs> they carried you know cases full of hard drives to the because transmitting a hundred x exibi- a hundred petabyte file, hundred petabytes is in astronomy is a small file. Takes twenty years to transmit a hundred petabyte file on the high speed fiber. Twenty years, <laughs> you just leave it in the hard drive and carry it in an airplane. You there in two days, right? But what what astronomers have, and researchers have been trying to figure out is, as as data are collected, you can use AI and algorithms to, as you're collecting it, make a determination of whether what you're collecting is noise or garbage. So you don't okay. store garbage, you don't store noise. So you you do it. You're not doing compression in the old sense of the word. You're doing like filtering. Filtering. But it's not. But it's a smart filter, and it has to be an AI-centric filter because the nature of what you're filtering is going to dynamically change. So you essentially you have to have a filter that's self-aware of the mission it's on. And it may be collecting data that you'd say, oh, I wish I had it because it would be useful for something else. That's irrelevant. It's not useful. You'd be like your doctor collecting data about temperatures outside. What the hell do you care? It, you, want, you want to focus on your personal body temperature. not the temperature of the room or the building. So that kind of focus, to your point, is possible uh, with the uh, application of, if you like, end, end-use AI that's now curating and, and determining what's noise and what's not noise, and then you're using AI at the other end, where you're now taking a curated—it's already a self-curated, call it naturally curated—curated. Curated, though it's done through AI the front end a data set, which allows even—even even though I still need a supercomputer, I'm now dealing with—I'll I'll pick a number—ten a petabyte file instead of a one exabyte file. And an exabyte, as you know, is a thousand thousandfold more than a petabyte. So you you've now changed the compute cost by a thousandfold to do something magical through the application of AI. So, so It's a virtuous circle. It's one of these rare times in history where the technology has, well, you could call a virtuous circle. It's almost as if driving, there's no an analog in the uh, like, you know, thermal, thermal mechanical world, but it's almost as if dr- the act of driving your car made the process of drilling for oil and refining gasoline more efficient. But just by the mere act of doing it the same machines and it doesn't they're independent magisteria right
3: i wondered if we could talk a little bit about materials the, the kind of second area of of advancement and, and uh, i really like this section of the book i think because a lot of people i don't think about materials that much um and um you know, you say, hey, we could draw a straight line from the MRI machine to mines in Brazil. I mean, there's a direct correlation between that. And, you know, we start, just yesterday I saw there was a Norway announced a big discovery of rare earths uh, that, you know, I I think previously were only available in China. So there's kind of this political dimension to the materials as well. So, you know, you um, talk about this uh, notion of computational Materials uh, and that the technologies that are emerging are are dependent on those. Can you can you explain to us what computational materials are?
0: Yeah, I mean, it. it, it I'm not the first one to use the word because it uh, it finds its roots obviously in the scientific domain of using computers to think about how to design materials with characteristics a product that that doesn't exist in nature, and so you can do the experiment. Using known laws of chemistry and physics, right, in in silico instead of in a lab, and then you then if the computer is powerful enough, you you now have accelerated the experimental phase by not just a thousandfold. You can do millions of experiments in silico in weeks in a supercomputer that you couldn't possibly perform over centuries in in real life. So you're talking about you're talking about simulations. Is si- that what you si- mean? Si- well, there's simulations based on the sort of quantum mechanical reality of how atoms and molecules combine. So really difficult simulation. But yes, you're simulating an experiment in in a computer. So that's a computational material in that sense. The other class of computational materials is designing materials that integrate uh, features of reactivity or awareness of its environment. So smart materials, materials that can heal themselves or change their property in some fashion because of the conditions they're in, whether it's hotter, pushed harder, you want them harder, you want them softer, you want them more ductile. Those those characteristics can be built into materials now because you can make them be fully integrated with the sensor and the actuator function, if you like. So that's but that's a computational material. It's an action, right? It's not so. It's not so just so
3: I understand, you, you, so you you do you have this line where, and I think you just said it, where you can there's potential to create materials that have properties that are impossible in nature. And I kind of, you know, kind of got stuck on that. I was thinking, well, how how is that possible? But now as you're explaining it, I think maybe I'm understanding because you're saying that it's because we've they've got sensors, they can react to their environment. So this sort of dynamically change their properties. Um, is, is that what you mean?
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously it's a, it's a rhetorical flourish because if it were impossible in nature, nature wouldn't permit it. Right. You, so it's that they don't occur naturally in nature would be the more, more precise, uh, language because the, nature is permitting it. Cause I'm using uh, natural atoms, uh, by definition, but th- no, that's, so the, the, the classic example of that is not just the self-healing material. So met, you know, metals and polymers, uh, polymers exist in nature because they're organic or organic polymers. But the kind of polymers we manufacture don't exist, don't exist in nature. Uh, some people are unhappy about that because they don't degrade naturally, right? You have to be careful how you dispose of, of, inor- of inorganic uh, materials. But you can imbue in them uh, properties, reactivity, intelligence, if you like, limited intelligence, self-awareness. It's, that doesn't occur naturally, right? It's, that, that doesn't exist in nature. Now, it exists in biology. Because animals, that's what animals and plants do. So we're, if you're sort of expanding that, we're trying to copy nature. You know, mimicking you know, nature is the, the holy grail of all materials. You would like to be able to grow a part rather than machine it from a block. So, you know, life doesn't exist from a big mass of, you know, organic protoplasms that you may chip away at the organic protoplasm, end up with a plant. Right, it grows from a seed and it grows into a plant. We do the inverse, and we build machines. Right, or we take wood, we chip away at it to get the part. Well, three D printers effectively emulate the growing process and allow you to do things that can emulate growing. In fact, we there are commercial, as, as is in my book, and people can find this. There are commercial three D printers that print skin for for uh, burned uh, skin grafts. That's now possible. So we are growing skin the way nature does. It turns out, skin is the easiest organ to. Uh, to emulate to grow but you know Dean Kamen is working on and as many others are is uh, growing uh, parts of parts of more complex tissues like the heart and even eventually growing a replacement heart for you from a 3D printer if you have a, you know an ailing or damaged heart you now this is a distinction with a difference as they say this is really different than the machining and assembling right so that kind of computational class of materials as well as the metamaterials, which were discovered only in the last two decades, which is thinking about ways to assemble uh, a surface such that it exhibits a property of what's called negative refractivity index. When you, you know, the famous experiment we all saw in, in high school physics class, you stick a spoon in a glass of water and it looks, looks bent, but it always bends the same way. That's how refraction works. Never bends the other way. But with a metamaterial, you can make the image bend the other way, which actually means that you can build a surface that will function like an invisibility cloak. So the science fiction idea of an invisibility cloak is now possible to build at certain wavelengths, not all wavelengths. So it's not crazy to say, you can make an invisibility cloak. I can make a surface invisible to certain wavelengths of light or radio frequency. Does does that have application other than in comic books, in science fiction or military? Yeah, it does. It turns out that that property of manipulating light in a way that no natural material, doesn't exist in nature, means that you can start thinking about building something called meta lenses for both radio frequencies and optical frequencies. So we're on the cusp of seeing, and back to my original analogy, not imagining, but these products are already being built, lenses that are tiny that actually emulate the properties of big lenses. The reason most cameras have big lenses is because you can't fake the optics without a big lens to get all the, well, meta lenses can do it. They can fake the optics. Same is true with switching radio frequencies, the, the trick with high-speed communications. I mean, Most, most of us have d- discovered that the internet does not move things at the speed of light. It's slow. And if you, you and I have a link and we send an email to each other, you noticed it takes t- a little while, depending on the packet. That's not just a routing issue. That turns out it's not just a physics issue of how fast the photons can go and fiber in the air. It's dominantly a switching issue. Switching speeds are really, really hard to make fast, very, really hard. And that's sort of the choke point. And it's limited by the physics of the, the switches, the optical switches. Well, meta lenses can change that by a factor of more than 10. So you're going to get it, this weird idea of a meta surface that doesn't exist in nature that might make an invisibility cloak. Well, up is a practical matter in toys like cameras, if you like, but more importantly, in the speed with which we can communicate, which which come back to where, you know, full circle, that will really matter because I need to put a lot of data into the cloud if I want to make AI really useful.
3: Could you, as a, you know, material scientist say, hey, I'd like to have a particular property and then could could I create an AI algorithm that sort of, in some sense, searches all the possible combinations, um, you know, again, yeah, I'm sorry, to to produce that? Like, could could you say, you know, design me
0: something that does this, and given the right data set, it, it could do it? Well, so the short answer is yes. In fact, such companies and, and programs already exist at a comparatively rudimentary level, because this is a really hard problem it, from a computa- computational perspective. This it's not just a computation, one plus one equals. Because when you start combining atoms and molecules in novel ways, you're in quantum physics land, which is not which is not just a computational problem. It's you need, you need computers that can do AI, right? That are looking for probable outcomes and high probabilities and can do it very fast. But so there are, there are a number of companies. One of the uh, earliest ones was spun out of Northwestern University, in fact, uh, which was designed to do exactly what you said in alloys. So it was very specifically designed to look at metallurgy. And if you said, I need an alloy that doesn't use cadmium because cadmium is toxic to handle. You'd like to use but it has this ductility, this temperature resistance, and you know, d- d- state your characteristics, and then go hunt all the possible combinations of non-cadmium alloys. Again, that's the in, in-, in silico experimentation based on you know novel ca- uh, combinations. And of course, what AI does, which is different than computation, when you program the original computers to do chess, what they were doing was try to program all future possible. Moves because it's a statistically limited number of moves. It's a big number, but it's pretty limited, and so you just crunch them fast. AI doesn't do that, right? AI AI does much more more akin to the learning that we do. It looks at different probabilities and different combinations that might not be obvious to to, to you or to the AI at the outset. That's not to say it's a big deal. It's self evident. You're you're a, a car designer or a pharmaceutical designer, and you, you wanna be able to ultimately ask the question, I need a product that behaves like an aspirin, but for this cohort of patients, this side effect wants to be avoided. I believe that the thing that causes the side effect in the drug is this with this biological function. Go, go find something, right? And some of that was already done, by the way, during the, the evil lockdowns with uh, the Otis, uh COVID pandemic. Uh, data lakes were created by a group of companies and uh, be offered for free to uh, clinical researchers to come up with both new vaccines and also new therapeutics. And a number of uh, novel uh, therapeutics were discovered that way, and they're in clinical trial now, so you still have to go through. Ultimately, you can even fake the clinical trial in silico. You can say, this is what a person will react like and do all that. So all digital twins. That's really, really hard. We don't have the computers to do that yet, but you can do some of it through the merging of bits and atoms, uh, as, as you know, I put it in my book, this, one of the things that you do is you put the relevant tissue that you're worried about being impacted, the real, the real lung tissue, the r- real heart tissue on slides, and you make a slide matrix of tens of thousands of slides, and you, you, you use both AI and a computer and actual biological cells, which is done today routinely, to look for first-order effects, toxicity effects, for example. Those things are real. Already happened. Back to my core thesis. So it's not hard to imagine them getting more powerful. If you believe computers are getting more powerful still, and Moore's law is not over, and it's not. I mean, all the hype of Moore's law is ending. Oh yeah, sure. Eventually, there's always limits. We're we're a long we're we're many generations away from the end of of Moore's law.
3: I wonder because we've got maybe fifteen minutes left to talk about the second part of your book, which is probably. The, the part that most people are, I guess, concerned about, uh, worried about, and you you have an optimistic take, right? The, the, the subtitle of your book is, hey, it's going to be the roaring 2020s. And um, I, so I wanted to get into that a little bit. You know, I, I'm uh, nerdy enough to have um, a favorite or a group of favorite economists that I like to follow. And one of them is this guy, Andrew Smithers, who I've known for a long time. And, you know, he, he, his take is, hey, the, the issue we've had is, or, you know, it's not that, hey, we need to worry about robots taking our jobs. It's actually, we're not very good at getting the most out of the technology we already have. So if you look at the productivity numbers in the last decade or so, you know, we've been below average um, almost for the last 15 years. And so his thing is, hey, we're not getting as much out of the technology that we already have. Why do you think, you know, it's going to be different? Why are we going to be able to, get more out of technology going forward than,
0: than we have had success doing in, in the recent past. I'll, I'll, I'll use my the same metric as that all along because we're already doing that, but only at a limited scale and deployment. So the ability to get more out of what already exists, the no, machines we know how to build, but make them more productive, how people operate with the machines, right? Because people have to, whether you think there's more or fewer people, it doesn't matter. There's still, there's always some point, there's an intersection of machines and people. How effective that interaction is, is uh, these boys correct. What happens, and this is no knock on economists, but I do knock the economists occasionally. (laughs) 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 I like to point out that economists are are only marginally good at building models to predict what's already happened and rarely demonstrated ability to predict anything that's going to happen when it comes to technology. So they don't, they're not really good at predicting dislocations. But they are correct that we, you know, new technologies go through these phases of uh, of maturity where they change things a lot initially. Once they're once they're commercially viable, so this is the first order problem: is that economists look at things and say, "I don't see any benefit for that technology." Well, it's because it's used in a de minimis way, and there's a learning curve, simplistically put, for all technologies, and then you get this r- r- big ramp. So, uh, robots and Car factories are a classic example uh, that did welding. The first robot, the Unimate in nineteen sixty-two, uh, profoundly improved the productivity of General Motors' Lordstown factory, and everybody copied it because it was the most productive factory in the car world because it implemented that class of robots. Well, we've we've wrung a lot of capability out of that. It's almost asymptote. So, can it get better yet? Well, okay, that's a fair question because what most economists would point to is this as gordon does at uh, the northwestern that we are we, you know once you have at the toilet it's done once you have met the car it's done And once you've made it enough better all the improvements are just incremental so there's not much more we can do so what you would want to look for are dislocations are, are there any profound dislocations so my whole book is really about the fact that across all markets transportation and healthcare and education manufacturing there are dislocations that are equivalent to in many cases, the development of the engine itself or the development of electrification and electric motors. There's that class of dislocations. There's not just one, there's a, there's a whole set of them. But when you look at history and you look at when dislocations have happened, again, to be simplistic, when the railroads came along, it was a, a full two decades before society reorganized itself around what how to operate with railroads to, to make the production system, delivery system, Combine the, ben- the, 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 capabilities of railroads. Same was true for cars, same was true for airplanes, same was true for computers. So fundamentally, the, you know, to, to, cut it to the simply, that's what the cloud is. The cloud is the combined with AI. And as you know, I ended last chapter, of my book is really about AI and research, but the c- combination of those two things is it, as, or more consequential is the combination of the motive age and electrification, the steam, the steam, the steam engine, internal combustion engine, plus electrification, circa nineteen ten nineteen twenty. We were we were not wringing the uh, benefits out of those those new technologies anywhere close to what they were going to do at that time, and it took time for management practices to building structures, everything, how you train people, how you train engineers, how to think and operate. So if you talk to students today in any in a, in engineering discipline about what they're going to do with the tools they have available, you see a sea change from what you would have talked to them 10 years ago. But those students are just now entering the workforce. Management practice are just now adjusting. Can you, can
3: you give me an example of that? Like, I'm curious, I mean, this is a specific example of how someone, you know, as one of your students, engineering students, now would th- think about using these tools compared to, say, just a, a decade ago. A 30-year-old.
0: So it, the first thing is you, you, you wouldn't think in terms of designing a manufacturing line that had a, a cobot, collaborative robot, that didn't have to be bolted down. So if you're designing a warehouse, scratch today, compared to 10 years ago, uh, you would do two things different in designing the warehouse. And it's already happening. So I use this as an example because that's been going on for a few years. Uh, you, you not, you're not getting rid of people, but you have in the warehouse wheeled and now walking, but mostly wheeled. Uh, autonomous or or fully, semi-autonomous or fully autonomous machines that are helping the people, but don't bump into the people. They don't hurt the people. They're aware of their environment. You know, most robots have to be bolted behind cages so they don't hurt people because they're not aware, can't control. So that that plus the fact that you now have sensors and AI to do analytics in real time that you didn't have five or 10 years ago changes not only how you design, design the warehouse itself, it changes how you would think about operating the warehouse, because you can push operational decisions to the edges. If the tool you have allows you to imbue the employee at the front line, person on the conveyor belt, with knowledge and information that they couldn't possibly acquire, because it would take an engineering team, you know, a day to analyze the data. But now that person is getting that information in real time. This might have to do with, potential failure of a conveyor. It might have to do with a change in supply chain. It might have to do with the fact that you're vacuuming up data in your network, and you know that the things that are going to be needed in two hours are really different to the things you're moving now, how you reposition your trucks, how you reposition yourself and your robots. You can do that in real time, and they are doing that in real time. So the reason, the reason we know that's happening, so we'll talk about productivity that got stalled out. Compare the economic productivity of delivering a package after you ordered it on the magic internet 10 years ago to today. Why is it that everybody, not just Amazon, can deliver stuff to you in a day or hours? What's different today from five or 10 years ago with that? That To say it's more productive is a, a profound understatement. Productivity is a measure, right? Of Same or more output with fewer inputs. Productivity of delivery of packages because of the combination of AI and, the, and the, the robotization, if you like, of the warehouse infrastructure is what's delivered to you this incredible increase in productivity of delivery of packages. That's what will happen in the, in the delivery of goods and materials to manufacturing plants. That's coming next. It's already starting, but it's harder because the problems are actually much more complex if you're making a car or making an airplane or making a pharmaceutical than they are to deliver a package, but the same modality for the same engineers working in those domains is coming is coming to them. So, how do you predict where it'll happen next? Well, not that easy, you know, because that's that. You, but you know, it is happening because it's already happening in some domains, and because the capabilities are getting cheaper fast.
3: I just going back to your you know delivering stuff because I think that's something that's salient to everyone. I mean, you talk about. I think you said 80% of the time a, a driver is, is it um, out of the car? Right. And so, you know, if you can have robots that can, you know, do that last leg, that last 50 feet, um, then all of a sudden you you get something that's even more efficient than than the games we that, that we've seen. And, and as you said, that that's on its way.
0: Well, I think there's a, there's, a, so, there's a social one that's always interesting about new technologies so. But the, the experiment that's been undertaken but not been deployed is you have the human or, or a, a anthropomorphic robot. You have to carry the heavy package delivered to deliver to, the, to your doorstop. But as everybody uh-huh. knows watching UPS truck, a lot of times the packages are light, trivial packages. It's, an easy, it's easy to imagine a construct where that truck uh, has flying drones that are relatively quiet that when he stops to deliver the 20-pound package, it's delivered 10 one pound packages to the other 10 houses and he drives away. So now instead of 80% of his time being out of the truck, it drops to 50%. That's a big deal. And if it dropped to 30%, it's a hu- these are consequential because it cuts in half the number of people you have to hire to drive trucks. It allows you to raise the salary of the truck driver, which is what's happening because we have a shortage of truck drivers. So the productivity boom is sort of nascent and waiting. The most common question I get because of the subtitle, you know, the roaring 2020s. Is, so when did the roaring start, after all? Come on, it doesn't feel like we're roaring. You know, governments can Sovietize economies, and I'm not saying that's our government. I'm saying governments can impede rather than accelerate dislocations and, accel- and, and markets. And, you know, the Great Depression, uh, it, so there's a very good book on this for, by an economist. So I, I, I do respect economists' retrospective <laughs> economic history. It's very powerful. Th- sometimes I don't draw the right lessons from it but the 19, during the Great Depression, some of the biggest advances in the productivity of the manufacturing sector of the United States took place during the Great Depression. So you would have said at that time, so where's the boom? Where's the productivity boom? It was happening because the, because the implementation of the technologies that were maturing and invented in the 20s happened in the 30s. And But for that, the U.S. would not have been Ill- mobilized. The war machine would be mobilized, but it happened during the Great Depression. So my guess my point is we're, we're in that kind of stage analogously we're, We have a, a simmering recession. We certainly have a lot of political debate about how to ignite our economy i'm I'm an anti-industrial policy person. I don't think there are people smart enough to manage the industrial policy. I think we have to be careful. but that's what we do we're We're human right and de- and, and God willing democracies do experiments rather than damn dictatorships. but I think we're we're in the interregnum where these adjustments are, are either just below the surface or on the penumbra, to use a different you know, metaphor and being, ign- being ignored by, by a lot of economists. And they would say, well, how can I measure it, right? And that's why I use analogies like with the warehouse. So look at that and tell me why that doesn't apply to mining because mining has been stuck in, uh, in the antediluvian air- ages for a long time. This is really, really hard to, to, to do mining. And why that won't apply to healthcare where we have a labor shortage and a lot of the tasks in healthcare uh, really can be performed by, I'm going to use a new term. I'm running a piece called dumb bots. Uh, it's a robot good enough to do a, a dumb task, so I could stop having the smart person do the dumb task. Yeah, I I, I think that's
3: quite important because um, you know if we think about the demographics, right? Um, and we had you talk about the great demographic reversal in your book, and we had Manoj Pradhan on the on the show who co-wrote that book, and you know his thesis is, hey, we're gonna. We're going to need all the automation we can get because for every job that's automated away, a new one is going to be created in age-related care. And what I was thought, thought was interesting of some of the bits in your book is like, hey, we can get robots to do cleaning and delivery and so on. And that frees up people to do more kind of higher-level service-related tasks. Um, so you, you, you think there's, a, there's a,
0: a genuine prospect for increasing productivity in, in healthcare. care? I think it's the first time we're going to have a chance for productivity gain in healthcare. I mean, as you know, I put it in my book because I was delicious when I found this research paper from some NIH guys a while back. They renamed the healthcare technology trend as EROM's law by just flipping the word Moore's law and said that you could map out that the increase in spending is, 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 be, is mapped with a decrease in output, output meaning healthy patients, you know, use drugs. So we have this inverse trend And So all across the healthcare domain, from discovery of drugs to doing clinical trials, which will be profoundly enhanced and accelerated by AI and by sensors, uh, into the delivery of everyday care, which is profoundly enhanced by edge AI and sensors in your smartphone, all manner of things that can be diagnosed more quickly and easily remotely with the assistance of physicians, saving you that visit and time, therefore productive, and, and curating instead of in a waiting room of a hospital or your doctor's office curating you before whether you should go there or not, that curation, even if it cut just cut 30% of the visits down, would be profoundly productive. And then elder care is the most interesting and challenging one given demographics. And uh, you know the, what, the example that, that I like is not just that I can do remote diagnostics, Lots of people I meet of, who have health issues have the, you know the EKG they can in your phone, right? The, the add-on device. It's very common and it communicates with the doctor. When you as you add AI to that, it's mapping it continuously. You get you, you're a real time alerts. So, well, it's, you know you're on a bad trajectory. Call you know call a doc, and even the cleaning thing. I mean, look, Rodney Brooks had a great line saying that it's far easier to train a robot to do a lawyer's job than it is to do a plumber's job, and that's true because AI in a machine doesn't have to do any manipulation. Uh, is is turned out to be easy. A lot of lawyers that are. You know, a lot of law firms, they have fewer lawyers because that job's been automated. But folding laundry turns out to be a much harder uh, cognitive task and mechanical task than anybody realized for robots. We're getting close to ones that could do that. It's been demonstrated finally. It used to be the sine qua non. Could a robot pick up a dirty, clean piece of laundry or pick up, you know, put it in a machine and, take it and fold it the way a human would fold it? It's doable. It's now expensive. But the key Rubicon has been crossed, uh, the, the, the doable uh, machines that can do that. Um, so what does that mean? Well, you want people to be able to live at home, not in institutions as long as possible. And a lot of the tasks that people have trouble with as they get older are mechanical tasks, you know, opening things, picking things up, moving things around cleaning. It sounds sort of science fiction-esque and dystopian to say robots will do that. Well, they're already doing it in as many applications on a limited basis. We see the kinds of anthropomorphic machines that Boston dynamics and agility robotics make, these look amazing to us today. I'll use my history again. Well, people were amazed at the first cars in the 1890s. They were blown away. Look at technology. I mean, from our perspective, we think they're kind of goobers. I mean, that was obviously not an advanced car. It was pretty amazing. Well, robots are, I guess they're not in the 1890s, but I would put them pre-Model T. We haven't seen the Model T robot, but this is a prediction that I made then, and I'll, I'll say it again we will see a Model T robot. We will see a, a, a robot that was functionally equivalent of a Model T robot. Uh, that we'll have widespread use across many applications. Uh, will probably, probably first in elder care areas, probably.
3: That's interesting, you. And um, I think we, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up now. But you have this great line in the book where you said, you know, if inventors of cars had asked people riding horses what they wanted, they would have said, A faster horse, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's, uh, it's difficult to imagine a future that's vastly different from our own. And, um, you know, if you're, if you want to try to do that, uh, I think this book is a really good place to start. It's called the cloud revolution. Um, and its author is Mark Mills. Um, so Mark, I really appreciate you taking the time. We've only just literally scratched the surface of a lot of the stuff that you cover in the book. Um, so thank you for, uh, Thank you for helping us understand a little bit,
0: and uh, really wish you all the best. Well, thanks. Thanks for the platform to expatiate on my optimism that we'll get through the dark days and have a bright, <laughs> booming future. It's still possible, but you have to ha- have to be- believe it's possible, not not in a science fiction way. You have to believe it's possible, which makes it worth you know fighting for and living for. But but thank you, I appreciate it very much. Well, that's great. And um, with that, we're going to
2: uh, pass it back over to Niels. Thank you so much, Mark and Kevin, for a very enjoyable conversation on a topic that is likely to dominate for some time to come. Most of the talk we hear on mainstream media about technology's impact on the future just focuses on AI. But Mark really helped me see that AI is only a part of the story. We're also experiencing a revolution in machines and materials, and it is the convergence of advances in information – machines, and materials that is both powerful and underappreciated. He believes this type of convergence hasn't happened since the early 20th century. It's obviously nice to hear someone like Mark, who is so optimistic about the future for the economy, and especially because everything he forecasts is based on technologies that already exist. It was also interesting to learn how large the physical footprint of the cloud is. A cloud data center has as much physical space as the Empire State Building, and there are 5,000 of them already in the world, and this number is going to get much bigger. And it was also fun to hear about some of the stranger things we're going to see, like materials that can bend light in a way that makes them invisible. But I guess we won't really see that one. Anyway, that's it for today. Make sure you go and follow Mark's and Kevin's work as well as getting a copy of their books because as you can tell from today's conversation, some of these ideas and topics are not being discussed enough on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged.